Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Season 4 of Next Generation Innovators, a Future Women podcast in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. Each week we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their business ideas into global businesses. Whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups from ideation and development to investment and scale. This season, I'm joined by serial startup expert Alicia Stevenson. She's a Telstra Business Women's Award winner and sold her first business at just the age of 30. Today, she's the commercial director of Future Women. Alicia is going to help us delve deeper into the running of a business so we can learn more about the secrets of startup success. Thanks, Brooke. It's a pleasure to be here. Our guests today struck up a friendship when they started working together in their early 20s and they came up with an idea for a podcast. They knew nothing about podcasting but recognised there was an opportunity to give young women the content they craved but hadn't necessarily found in the mainstream media. So they took the plunge and launched Shameless, a podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. Shameless has since gone on to win awards and has been downloaded over 15 million times. Today, they're passionate about empowering and entertaining others and run their independent women's media company, which has evolved to include twice-weekly episodes, a monthly book club and a weekly newsletter. Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald, welcome to Next Generation Innovators. Thank you so much for having us, guys. So you met and bonded in your early 20s when you were working at the women's media company Mamma Mia. Tell us about those early days working together and how your friendship was forged. I feel like our friendship was forged. I mean, this will be interesting if Michelle actually agrees with me because we often speak on behalf of each other right now. (laughs) Um, But it was often forged over disagreeing about things. Like we had really similar interests, but often very different opinions on it. So what I found when Mish and I were working together is we'd find ourselves in kind of heated debates about stuff as silly as The Bachelor. And I think because we were so young working there, we were kind of obnoxious in this open plan office. And I remember so well the head of podcasting at Mamma Mia at the time, Monique Bowley, plucking us out and saying, you two need to take this debate into a studio. And so we did. We took the debate into a studio and it kind of kind of all went from there. Yeah, I just remember we had the easiest conversations. Like I always loved thrashing something out with Zara and kind of hearing her opinions on different things. And we were always hanging out at work together and we'd talk all the time at work, but it's so funny because a lot of people come to us and say, oh, well, what's the key to meeting a co-founder or starting a business with someone that's in your life? And I think it's been really important for us that we actually met in a professional space because it meant that before we built this great friendship that we now have, we talk all day, every day, but before we built that, we were co-workers and we were colleagues and we had to disagree professionally and we had to have conversations in a really constructive way. And I, I look back now and I think it would almost be impossible for me to do this job with anyone else in my life, anyone that I'd met socially uh, before trying to kind of professionalize the relationship. So yeah, I think that's been really core to what we've built. 
That's very interesting. So you guys did actually leave your jobs together at Mummy and left to devote all your energy to Shameless. What was the exact moment that you knew that it was time to do that? Can you pinpoint that? I think there were little moments along the way, but I remember really, really early on, I think it was about nine or 10 weeks into us producing the podcast and hosting the podcast. We didn't have that many listeners. We probably had about, I don't know, a thousand, 1500 listeners, but it kind of got to a point where Nish and I realized we either needed to choose our jobs or pick the podcast. And so I very quickly started applying for other jobs elsewhere because what we'd done is we'd accidentally birthed a competitor podcast to the workplace that we were working at and we wanted to back the podcast. Like it was just a very awkward scenario. So I remember us having conversations and I said to Mish, I'm applying for all these jobs and I think we really need to back this. And I got a job. We both quit on the same day. Mish went freelancing. I went into this other job, but even still, I lasted about six months working there before we really decided like this was a thing we needed to pursue. And I think it was when we started to decide to do live shows. And I was still in this other job. I was working for Domain at the time, writing lifestyle content. And we decided that we were going to sell some live show tickets and we did. And they sold out within about five minutes. And I was sitting at my desk at my job, pretending to do my job, but in reality, like always had a split screen. I was always on my phone doing shameless stuff. And it was there that I said to Michelle, like, I need to quit this job now because I'm such a bad employee and we need to back this and really push it. It's such a brave thing to do because you didn't know much about podcasting before you started Shameless. So no. was it <laughs> was it harder or easier than you expected? And what do you wish you knew before you recorded that first episode? You know what? I'm so happy we knew so little. And I think that's <laughs> also really crucial to the success of the show or the fact that we even started. I think naivety was so powerful for us in that if we had sat down and gone, okay, let's launch a podcast. Also, let's buy all this very expensive equipment with very small bank accounts. Let's also teach ourselves how to host and how to produce and how to edit audio. We probably never would have begun. And so I think when we were kind of tossing around the idea and we knew in our gut that it would work, that was all we needed. And that was really important, really magical to us so that when all the various hurdles did pop up and they popped up again and again and again, particularly in that first year, we just kind of figured that the only solution was to try and jump over them. It wasn't like we ever felt, oh, well, now this is getting too hard. We were like, oh, well, we've already come so far. We may as well just figure this next thing out as well. And so it was really tricky. Like we funneled a lot of our money. We were 23 when we launched this podcast. And as any 23-year-old can probably vouch for, we didn't have much money to begin with. So we had to be scrappy. And I kind of love that. Like we had to just figure out a way and kind of get around what big media companies do and just do a bit of guerrilla marketing and really, um, I guess, get on our hands and knees. And like we were putting posters for Shameless up in university bathrooms, telling people at university to listen to the show. And let me tell you, universities in Melbourne could do with a really deep clean, like their bathrooms (laughs) are not clean enough. But things like that, it's really crucial to the show's success and that we just kind of were like, well, we have to do it. We want it to work. So we're going to make it work. Beautiful. Let's throw back to the university bathroom days. I never thought I'd say that as a sentence in a podcast, but let's throw back to to the university bathroom days of March 2018. Mm. Tell us about the first episode of Shameless, especially like when you listen back to it, how do you feel? You know, is it like, oh, look at all the things that we did. Like, oh, that's a bit embarrassing. Oh, you're really proud. Like, I don't listen to it back. I actually don't think I have listened to it back since because I know exactly what it would have been like. We were 
going blind. I think we do this segment in the podcast every week, which is called the quick and dirty, which is kind of like the top five stories. We kind of do a really quick wrap on. And when we did our very first episode, we scripted that entire 15 minutes as if we were reading. And it was, it only took us an episode to be like, that is so silly for us to do. We had a few kind of pieces of feedback. People being like, just don't script that be as natural as you can. And so for those reasons, I don't think I can listen back, but I genuinely love it because I say now that we were kind of practicing publicly, like we were teaching ourselves how to do this publicly. And as terrifying as that is, I think it's a really good lesson that you can put stuff out publicly and keep going. Like I I am a huge believer in the idea that done is better than perfect. And I think that a lot of people don't pursue their dreams because they want it to be perfect at the start. But if they want any proof that they can drop something and pursue it from the moment they have the idea, all they have to do is listen to our first episode and realize that we did not have it all sorted in that first episode, (laughs) but you can learn as you go Mm. and you can grow and you can change. And I think that's a really good thing for people to see and you have it on a public record. Mm. So fast forward to now and Shameless has had more than 15 million downloads. What were your download numbers in those first few episodes? And so how did you grow it and, and grow your following? I think our first episode in the month that went live was downloaded 480 times. And I remember these specific numbers because from the get-go, Zara and I charted our growth in Excel sheets. Like I do not want anyone to look at the success of Shameless and think these girls just threw something at a wall and it just happened to work. Because that's not the truth. We knew that if we were going to leave our jobs to pursue this, we had to be meticulous with actually funneling our energy into it. And we need to take it seriously. And so we did chart our growth week on week. We had targets from week one and we didn't always hit them, particularly in that first year. But I think that was important to us because every time we saw the next week's target, every single week the show had to grow. It was the problem for us to be like, okay, well, how are we going to solve this? We want to grow by 10% week on week. So where are we going to find this extra 100 listeners? And that's where the things like the university posters came from or the simple instruction of asking listeners to share them listening to either take a screenshot of the podcast app or take a photo of where they listen and put it up on their Instagram stories. We knew that asking millennials or asking Gen Zers to post something on their grid is a huge investment. Like we see brands do that all the time, asking people to post on their grid. And as 20 somethings, we're not going to do that unless the prize is like potentially a million dollars or something at the end of it. But with Instagram stories, I'll put anything up there. It's only up there for 24 hours. If you ask people to support you as well, I think also playing into the fact that we were the underdog, like we were always transparent about the fact that Mamma Mia rejected us. First of all, we never hid that fact. We were pretty honest about the fact that every major podcasting network in the country rejected us. And I think Australians love an underdog. So when we said to our listeners, hey, we're doing this independently, we've left our jobs, please support us, they were more than happy to. And that was a huge key to finding new listeners every week. That's the thing. And one of the things I think is amazing about you guys is the decisions that have been made along the way to commercialize this idea, right? Because a podcast is a podcast. It's a great idea. You can have great chemistry, but you also have to have the wherewithal to commercialize that, to get those listeners, understand what its value is and understand how you're positioned, like you say, as the underdog. Recently, you guys made a decision to close down your Facebook group. It had 40,000 uh, members in it mm. because it was, I think, too labor intensive to moderate. You've got, you know, 100K Instagram followers, 30,000 in your book club, your weekly newsletter. I'm interested about the reasoning, you know, and if you can expand on that decision to close the Facebook group. The Facebook group 
for us was a decision that we made over probably three months, and which is really interesting for Michelle and I because the way we run our business is pretty fast and loose. Like we make decisions very, very quickly and we kind of trust our guts immediately. And the minute we kind of come to the same conclusion on something, we're like, done, that's the decision. Let's move on. Let's not waste much time. Like I'm very big on efficiency and just kind of getting stuff done. But when it came to the Facebook group and you've got 40,000 of your most engaged listeners in there who kind of love connecting with each other, love connecting with the podcast, it kind of grew beyond a podcast to a community and that community lived in that Facebook group. It was a really hard decision to know when is the right time to shut that down and to kind of close down that one aspect of the community. So we spent three months talking about it. And I remember sitting in my bedroom over Zoom because, of course, like this entire year has been over Zoom in meetings. And Mish was kind of floating this idea, being like, you know, we can close down the Facebook group. And it was the weirdest thing because it was something that I'd never, ever considered to be a possibility. Like I always just assumed that the Facebook group would live with us so long as the podcast lived with us. But It got to the point where we felt like we couldn't be on 24-7 and in order to protect our listeners and make sure that space was safe and productive, we needed to be there 24-7. And the reality is we needed to sleep and see our families sometimes. And we were spending Sunday mornings when we were meant to be at brunch moderating some very political discussion that was going wild in the Facebook group. Or we were trying to sit down and watch a television show after a very long day of work and we were having to jump back in. And I think the reality was for us that if we can't protect people and keep them safe in that space, then it is not worth having because having people feel safe and protected is far more important than us having this community just existing for the sake of saying you've got 40,000 people in a Facebook group. Mm, Totally. And as a secondary thing to that, I think it was so important for us to also protect our own energy. Like if we're running this business and we're in it every single day, we have to enjoy work. And if we feel like something is sapping our energy or it's making us resent logging onto our computers or sitting behind a microphone every day, then why are we doing it? And I think it was so important to us because as soon as we shut the Facebook group down and it kind of released all this new time in our day, we found that passion and that love for what we do again. I think that when the Facebook group is so busy all the time, I just felt depleted and I felt burnt out every single day. And I remember I walked into a hairdressing appointment. I think this was a day before we shut the group down or the day of. And the hairdresser just looked at me. She's like, you look exhausted. Like you look so stressed. You look so burnt out. What is going on? And I love hairdressers because I think they're kind of like therapists, aren't they? Sometimes you sit in and they know how you're feeling better than you do. But I think even her saying that to me, being like, you just look like a ball of stress right now, told me, I need to delete this and Zara needs to delete this so that we can keep going and we can keep doing this because Shameless is something that we want to continue doing for years. And at this rate, we're going to burn out in the next couple of months. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. The Entrepreneurs Program can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way. And you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs Program can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 13 28 46. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn, and lead. There's a price point to suit all budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. 
Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where our guests today are Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald from Shameless. Part of why you guys have been so successful is that you're so honest with your audience and you do acknowledge mistakes and what you don't know as well. And I guess the flip side to that, being so brave and being so vulnerable, is that you do open yourself up to a lot of criticism. And some of the stuff that you post is so brave. It's stuff that even I wouldn't post about Indigenous affairs or women's rights and, and others because I know what the, the feedback is is going to be. How do you manage that personally and how do you deal with the pushback? I mean, you're so right. I think the minute you kind of want to say anything particularly personal, vulnerable or political, you are going to open yourself up to a wealth of opinions. And I get, that's absolutely the, the cost that comes with sticking your neck out and wanting to say things. And, of course, there have been times where I've been like, God, it's much easier to be in this space and say nothing. Like I used to be much younger and um, look at people who never said anything in the public eye and be like, why don't they just say something? Like I used to get so frustrated. And then when you start to say something, you realize exactly why people don't. And you look at them and you think, oh, sometimes it would be very nice to be like that. (laughs) But the reality is I don't think Michelle and I are ever going to do this job and not say things. Like I think it goes directly against who we are as people. Like we're relatively outspoken. I would like to say or think that we are thoughtfully outspoken. Like we are careful and particular about the things we want to speak about. But I just think we'd be betraying exactly who we are as people. Like we're passionate people and we have a huge audience. And I think we have a responsibility to that audience. Like we owe that audience parts of ourselves, parts of our beliefs. We owe that audience to stand up for things that matter. And I think that we'd be cowards if we didn't do that just because we can't cop a little bit of flack from time to time. Yeah, I think that level of self-awareness is what makes probably both of you such a great team and allows you to work together so well. I'm interested though, from sort of a startup business perspective, you do work together as a great team, but how do you actually divide work and how do you reconcile disagreements as you're flying through all of these decisions that you're having to make almost on the daily pivoting this business as it goes? It's so funny because I'm sure out of 20 decisions that we make as a business, there might be one that Zara and I disagree on generally we just try to suss out pretty early on who feels more passionately about it and we just let that person have their way. I think we often disagree, but it's very, very clear if one of us is like hellbent on something being, I guess, swung a certain way and the other person's like, oh, I would prefer this, but I'm not that passionate about it. So we really try to suss that out early on. But I think we tend to agree on a lot because I think we have a very clear vision and we have a lot of... um, is it symbiosis with how we view the future of the company? So for us, it's kind of easy a lot of the time that the answer is obvious to us. And I love that we can communicate so honestly with each other, because I think when people ask us about our relationship, I say it's very much like sisters in that with my sisters, I will tell them what I think point blank. I don't need to blur the edges of it. Like I'll just tell them what I think and why I think it. And Zara is the same, but we have huge respect and trust with each other that I'm not sure I could talk with anyone else in my life the way I talk with Zara. But I know that at the end of the day, we always trust and respect each other and we love each other. And regardless of how we think about different things or where we stand, we're always fine. Like it's never like we have a disagreement or an argument and then we can't talk to each other after that. Like we talk all day, every day, and we just love working together. So I think it's just lucky. I think we're really lucky to have found each other and work so well together because I don't think it's something that's very, very common. So many brands love that, you know, that sort of like 
honest speaking, truth telling, like forthright, strong young women. Are you at the stage now where brands are just actively coming after you guys or do you still need to spend time pitching ideas and and submitting briefs for some of the dollars? And how do you manage that tricky line between not bombarding your community with with messages from sponsors and also still having to make money? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, we probably could fill our episodes with leads that come into us, to be honest, but the sponsorship aspect of the podcast and how we monetize the brand and the content is so important to us that sometimes, yeah, we still do spend a big deal of time pitching out because we want the partnerships to work as perfectly as possible and to kind of seem as seamless as possible. So yes, we could feel every episode with leads that come in, but a lot of them just aren't right. Like a lot of them just won't work. There is so much that we say no to. And um, we recently brought on a a partnerships and and marketing manager in-house. And I think she has one of the most annoying jobs in the world because she'll be like, I have this great lead. And we will be like, we just can't do that. Like we just cannot pursue that relationship, even if it's got a great dollar figure on it. So we are really careful about it. I mean, that said, you know, a lot of people are going to have an issue with any brand that exists. Just kind of like any conversation, no one's going to agree with everything. But we think about it really carefully and it comes down to a few simple things like, would I use this product or would the audience use the product? Is it right for the demo? Is it helpful? And we kind of have a list of things we need to check off before we say yes to anything because we spend so much time thinking about it. As far as frequency as well, it's really important to Zara and I that we have one ad per episode. It's really interesting looking across the US and the UK and they really pump their podcast full of advertising. So with Joe Rogan, you'll get 10 minutes of back-to-back ads when his episode begins. And I'm not going to rule that out and say Shameless will never, ever do that. But we generally tend to follow what we enjoy as consumers. And as a voracious podcast listener, I like listening to a podcast and having one meaty advertisement. So like a pre-roll, a mid-roll that goes for a minute and maybe an end roll as well. So we love doing that. And I think that the listeners trust us with that as well, that it'll be one ad. It'll be an ad that really resonates with our audience. And we're not going to just take five back-to-back ads because that's the best way to make money. I think the best way to keep, the best way to make money as a business is keeping trust with your audience. So Mm -hmm. we need to keep trust with them and we need to not pump every episode filled with paid advertisements. And I think the same is with Instagram. I think the rule that we use at the moment is we love things that give back to our community. So if a brand wants to do like a giveaway, we love working with them on that because our listeners get something out of it. Or if our listeners can interact with something, or if we do an Instagram paid post, but it's funny, like we've really gotten into in ISO, particularly because Zara and I haven't been in the same room for months. We've gotten into the habit of like photoshopping each other into photos. So we are in the same room or like Zara's Tinkerbell on my hand, or like I'm posing in front of a car and Zara's next to me, but she's been photoshopped in. I think our listeners want to have a laugh. So as long as we're putting thought into how we're doing things and we're not just like holding up teeth whitener, which we wouldn't work with anyway, but we're not just holding it up and getting a quick cash grab. Like we want to show our listeners that we care and that we want to put effort into everything we do. And if it does go to 10 minutes of back-to-back ads a la Joe Rogan, that means that you get to do three and a half hour podcast episodes like he does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where he could literally eat dinner in the middle of his podcast and keep recording through it. Um, so at the moment, uh, one of the most exciting things that's happening for you guys is that you've written a book together. Wow. Woo-hoo. 
uh, that's called The Space Between, which is about navigating your 20s. It's about the phase between being a teenager and then to a proper adult and all the things that are often not written about in a practical and helpful way. And how did the book come about? How did the idea come about? We kind of did start sharing more parts of ourselves on the podcast as we kind of went along. And we kind of had this, or I definitely had this fundamental belief because I am not very good at sharing and I am quite private that you kind of have to share parts of yourself to kind of encourage buy-in. Like, I don't know how anyone's going to trust anything I say or an opinion that I have if they don't know who I am and they can't really understand why I'm coming from something from the angle that I am. So we started to share small parts of ourselves on the podcast and we really wanted to write a book. Like we really, really wanted to. And it's not something you say very loudly because it sounds a bit silly and pie in the sky to say out loud, but together we were like, we want to do this. And we started brainstorming what a book would look like. And we figured we want to write a book about our twenties while we're in them. And it sounds like the most arrogant concept in the world (laughs) to write a book about your twenties while you aren't even halfway through. But the idea was we want to write this stuff while we were in the thick of it, while it's chaotic and messy and we don't have answers because I think that's the easiest way for someone to feel seen and heard and understood. And so we were throwing around these ideas of what it would look like and how it would possibly work together. And it was literally only about a week later that an email dropped into our inbox from um, Izzy, an editor at Penguin, who listened to the podcast. And she said, have you guys ever thought about writing a book? And we replied straight away being like, yes. And we kind of came up with the idea about a week ago. So we started to talk to her and weirdly at the same time, a few other offers started to drop in and, And we pursued it with Penguin and we pursued this idea because fundamentally we wanted people to have a book that we didn't think existed. There was a gap in the market that made them feel a little seen, heard and understood. Well, it's wonderful. So congratulations. You've done such a a beautiful job. And there's so much in there that's, you know, it's very painful. You know, there's a lot of honesty and really, really personal topics like endometriosis, anxiety, painful sex and sexual assault as well. Do you think that you have to get to a certain point in those sorts of experiences where you feel like you've worked through what the issues are and then you can feel like you can speak about them comfortably and openly without you know, bursting into tears? Or is the process of writing it about catharsis in and of itself? Mm. I think both things can be true. I think certainly for Zara and I, some of the things we touched on in this book are incredibly personal and we wanted to be at a place where we had kind of worked through it. It's really important to us that we didn't just regurgitate trauma for the sake of regurgitating trauma. Like if we were going to tell stories, we want them to be helpful and we want them to make women feel comforted if they've been through the same thing. And I personally been going to a psychologist for almost four years. And I think that process has been super important for me because it means that I can hopefully approach some of these things in a helpful way, in an honest way, but also in a way that's nourishing, not just titillating. And I really, with the last essay in the book, which is about sexual assault, I did not want to retell that story in a way that was just like all the gritty details of it. That wasn't what was important to me. What was important to me was the aftermath and working through that. So yeah, that's been super important for Zara and I. And I think any young writer needs to really analyze why they're writing what they're writing. And I think sometimes you are encouraged to kind of mine your personal life for clicks or for attention or for the digital media publication or newspaper you're working for once at the time. And I think we certainly felt that in our early careers. And I'm happy that we saved some of these stories until later on, once we had the time to actually process them properly and tell them in a better way. I really like the expression, mind your personal life. I Mm. think that 
that really hits a nail on the head of, of what it can be like at different times to produce content, especially in this space. So as part of this entire venture, giving back is really, really important to the both of you individually. And you work with a number of charities. At what point did you feel as though the business could afford to do that? And how did you choose the charities that you wanted to support, that you wanted to partner with? I mean, it was a pretty natural thing for us from the start. And to be honest, it was something that we kind of did do from the beginning, even when we didn't have huge money coming in, because I think we started to have an audience and you're kind of so aware of that power and you can do really good things with that power or you can do kind of bad things with that power. And I don't know, I just have like this belief and Michelle has exactly the same belief that you have some sort of responsibility to do good and to use it in a good way. So we started to say, well, how can we actually bring the community together? Because the community itself was so engaged and is still so loyal and wants to do good too. How can we bring them together and kind of all together do some good? So we started to, you know, release charity merch and things like that. And the charities kind of came to us quite naturally. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations with our audience about the stuff that they care about and they care a lot about sexism, racism, and environmentalism. So we kind of thought, how do we kind of cater to those three things and make sure they feel like they're doing good as well? But it's interesting. I think once you get to a point as a business where you want to make sure that a core value of the business is doing good, you also have to think about, well, if I stand for every single cause, it's all going to be completely watered down and not much of it's going to have much impact. And I think that's the point we're in right now, the conversations we're having right now being like, what are the core things we want to align with? And what are the causes that we really, really want to do good work in so that we can have that impact? Because I just fear if you do kind of try to do everything, you don't do anything well. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're in this position where things are growing so rapidly and, you know, the world is changing and you guys are working in a new medium, you know, there's not a huge amount of experience in that sort of sphere in Australia. So who did you look to to inspire you? I mean, who are your heroes? Who in the Australian media and publishing world do you admire? Oh, I mean, that's such a good question because there are so many people Basically, anyone who's been on an In Conversation episode is someone who has hugely inspired us so that we look to for a source of inspiration. So, Brooke, you are one, one such person. <laughs> you stop it right now. Stop it. Say more. Say more. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is so many women in particular in Australia that we really admire, we really look up to. Jamila Rizvi is a huge one for us. She was actually our boss for a hot second. I don't think she'd even remember that time. I think we were like lowly interns when Jam Rizvi was the editor of Mamma Mia. No, she remembers it. We had a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's incredible. Like Jamila Rizvi is just such a force for young women. And I think what's really surprised Zara and I in the most beautiful way has been how many women, particularly in the Australian media landscape, have mentored us privately and quietly behind the scenes. And because they've been so generous with their time and their insights and their knowledge, we kind of want to shout about that publicly. So Jam Rizvi and Zoe Foster Blake have been two such women for us who have reached out quietly and been like, let's go grab coffee. Let's talk through what your plan is with this shameless thing. And let's kind of like make it happen. So I think we do take so much inspiration from so many people. One such man actually is Sam Kavanagh, who used to be the executive producer of Hamish and Andy. He's also been incredible for us. But I think that's been such a shining light. Going into such a public and daunting career, I thought, oh, everyone will be very territorial. People probably won't reach out. Everyone's going to be fighting for the same slice of pie type thing. But 
if anything, the reality has kind of been the opposite for us. We have been overwhelmed with how much love and support we've received from really quite successful, inspirational people, particularly as an independent podcast. No one has to give us their time, right? No one has to give up an hour of their day to talk to us about their life and their career. So we are extremely grateful. And we put this in the acknowledgements of our book as well. Any person who has ever come on an In Conversation episode and then shared it with their community or shared it with their audience, we are just so indebted to that person because they don't need to do that. And I think it's really good to kind of repay the favor wherever we can down the line as well, whether that's a public shout out or just saying thank you behind the scenes. Yeah. And also I think for Michelle and I, like we started this when we were 23 and we've been driving blind ever since. And as wonderful as that has been, it's also terrifying sometimes because you're faced with something you have no idea how to fix. And there have been times where we've been kind of in real slumps or had real hurdles to kind of go over and to have someone to be able to know that you can just pick up the phone and be like, we have no idea what to do with this really weird thing that we have to handle right now. And to have people kind of want to bounce off us for no reward and for nothing for their own and has been the best thing in the world because it can be a bit scary when you're not a natural business person and you do find yourself running a business really young. You need those people in your corner that you can just call and say, help. I think it's beautiful. And I will make sure that Jam has listened to this episode. Um, <laughs> so uh, what is next? What's next for Shameless? What are you planning on doing? You know, well, I was going to say, are you planning on doing live events? But, you know, mm. if that's going to depend. But are you going to do some live events when restrictions ease? Is there maybe a spin-off podcast in the way? You know what? We will do live events when we are allowed to. That was actually the plan for 2020. 2020 was going to be live show bonanza, basically. Like for this book, we were going to do a national tour. We were hopefully going to go over to New Zealand. All of those plans went to the bin, obviously, with COVID. But we definitely want to do that in 2021. Virtual bonanza. <laughs> yeah. But we generally don't like pre-planning too much. I feel like we are in such a modern quickly evolving landscape in podcasting and digital media, where if we had a five-year plan, we would probably miss the next thing. Like think about the rapid rise of TikTok. Who knows what the next big thing will be in digital media? I think it would be a mistake of Zara and I to ever have this really rigid set plan. I really love being agile. I really love kind of doing what we do and taking each project on its merits and just seeing what life throws at us and seeing what comes next. This book was such a surprise how quickly it all came together. I would hate to lock ourselves into something and miss something shiny and great on the periphery. So for now, hopefully what's next is a holiday. I would love to just take a break and take my foot off the accelerator just for a little bit. And I think Zara is the exact same. Come up and have a holiday up here so we can go out for a drink together. Yes. When the borders (laughs) open back up. I would love to get to Sydney right now. Yeah, it's going to be 29 degrees today. I, I'm going to, do you know what, girls? I'm going to send you a selfie of me on the beach. Not to make you jealous, but just to show you, you know, it this is happen. what we're going to do when you come up and visit when you're okay, on your holiday. That sounds wonderful. We like to ask all of our guests the same final question, which is, what advice do you have for listeners who have a great business idea and are thinking about taking that leap and making it happen? For us, I think it probably harks back to what I said at the very start, which is done is better than perfect. Like get it out in the world. Perfectionism, particularly among women, can be paralyzing. I think you can spend so long 
mulling on the edges of something before actually just getting it out into the world. And I think sometimes being a perfectionist is actually kind of playing into fear a little bit because you're so scared of what this product could look like if you just launch it, you know, with the idea at hand. So I would say get it out into the world. We probably could have spent a year planning what Shameless was going to look like. We probably could have spent a year planning how to produce it and edit it and market it. But we just pushed it out and kind of, you know, muddied our way ever since and it and it seemed to work. So I would say done is better than perfect. Get it out into the world. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the best way to improve at whatever you're doing is just to start. If Zara and I spent that year planning Shameless, we would have been pretty terrible hosts, to be honest. We needed to get behind microphones and kind of suss each other out and find a rhythm and find a groove together. So I'm really happy that we began before we were ready. And I think there's that really classic quote that men apply for jobs when they're maybe 70 or 80% ready. Women only apply when they're 100% ready. And I would love for any woman listening to this who feels 80% ready to just start today, make your website, make the thing, launch it, because just starting was the best thing we ever did. I think that's the most brilliant advice. And I think that's reflected or mirrored in your audience and how passionate they are about you, that they really are behind you. And I feel as though if you ever made any mistakes or I haven't seen you make any, I'm sure, I'm sure you have, you know, people, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, your audience love you and are so endeared to you that they're like, that's okay. We know like we're here, you know, it's, everything's fine. We're with you, you know, and it, it sort of helps to build that community. I feel almost. Yeah. Being honest for sure. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're so grateful to like anyone who gives us, their time, especially as women, we're busy, we're running between a million different things. And I'm saying this is a 26 year old with zero kids. <laughs> no responsibilities in lockdown. <laughs> Literally. But it's such a big deal for someone to give you their time. So I want to thank those people for their time. And I would hate for our listeners to ever think that we're too big for our boots or we don't care about them because the listeners are the core reason we do this every week. And they're the reason we have this career, which is so important for Zara and I to remember. They literally gave us the best job in the world. So Whatever way we can repay that, we will. Thank you so much for joining us. We love the podcast. We love your work. And we cannot wait to see what you sink your teeth into next because I have no doubt it's going to be amazing. Thank you, guys. Thanks. And we thank you for your time. And by the book, everyone, The Space Between. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having us, guys. Thanks for listening. Next Generation Innovators is a future women podcast made in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. And it's produced by Fancy Films. Join us again next week and make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could share, rate and review the podcast as it really does help people find us. See you then.